0: In fact, I told a, a friend of mine, her. I, I walked her through negotiating for a used Jeep Grand Cherokee, had like 13,000 miles on it. She got it for a song I'm like, just tell the girl you're going to go buy new. There's lots of incentives. Scared the tar out of the guy in the used car line.
1: What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Danielle DiMartino Booth is CEO and Chief Strategist of QI Research, a research and analytics firm. Prior to QI Research, Danielle spent nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, where she served as advisor to President Richard Fisher throughout the entire financial crisis. In this conversation, we discussed Danielle's biggest concern for the US economy, the time Warren Buffett randomly reached out to her, Danielle's current stance on inflation and what's to come, the state of the auto lending market, and how the Fed makes decisions and why sometimes it doesn't make so much sense. We're living through interesting economic times, to say the least. I hope this conversation helps you make some sense of all of it. Here's my conversation with Danielle DiMartino Booth. All views of Car Dealership Guy and guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. None of the views expressed should be treated as financial advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Danielle DiMartino Booth on the pod. Danielle, welcome.
0: Great to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm a third-generation car guy, Mike. my kids are
1: fourth. Uh, wait, how so? What's the, what's the connection?
0: Uh, so my Italian grandfather immigrated in 1923 from Italy. The U.S. Uh, Army trained him to be a mechanic in World War II. He was never deployed. He was in Great Britain the whole time. He came back, opened up two Sunoco stations on each side of I-95 outside of New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, he was a car guy. My father was a car guy. There's pictures of me with a wrench in my hand and a diaper <laughs> on. and my kids are all car guys, so... Uh, Instead of listening to like, you know, the latest hot topic, whatever, we'll go down the highway with my oldest son going, you know, name that engine. It's like, mom, that's the Aston Martin. It's not street legal. So total car guy. So happy to be here.
1: I love it. Well, the good thing is we're not talking about cars today at all. <laughs> so, well, we sort of are, well, but we'll probably, get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, so I think what's really interesting is that, uh, I you know, I've had this podcast now for about 90 days or so. And we really haven't had someone come on and just talk about lending to in depth automotive lending. Just you know the markets. We ha- I have had an economist on on the podcast, John Smoke from Cox Automotive, uh, but that was much more you know focused strictly automotive. And I think zooming out a bit, just the market's super fluid right now. A lot of change. I can tell you that dealers are contacting me on a daily basis, asking me many many different things. You know specifically because they're assuming that I'm crowdsourcing all this information from the market which to a certain degree I am, but I'm definitely not an economist or an expert in that sense. And so anyways, tons of questions teed up. Before we even get started on that, can you just give us your background, right? Tell us about, you know, QI research, your company, how you got to this point. I just think you have a very interesting set of experiences. So we'd love for people to know about that.
0: So um, I'm I'm in New York, uh, sure. where I'm up here for media. I, I lived. I started my, uh, my career in New York after I got my MBA in finance. I, I went to an investment bank. Uh, called Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jen Rett. There was a huge private equity presence at this bank, which made it different than Goldman or Lehman or Morgan Stanley. It was truly unique because we helped provide mezzanine finance or leverage buyout financing, but it was really cool to be around before private equity was this huge thing. Um, I also went to Columbia at night and I got my second degree in journalism. I thought when I retired off Wall Street, I was gonna write for a living. That happened earlier than I anticipated after 9-11. So I ended up uh, signing a non-compete, leaving the business, giving my mostly at that point junk bond business uh, back to the, the, the junk bond trading desk. I learned a lot there about spreads and lending to the, the lesser credit worthy, which we'll round around to uh, when it comes to cars. Uh, and I ended up leaving the industry thinking I'd never go back had a daily column within a few months of starting at the Dallas Morning News. It was like the oldest unpaid intern they'd ever had because it worked really well with their budget, the free part. When the internet was taking over, you know, the old-fashioned reading the newspaper. And uh, Warren Buffett reached out to me. He's like, you're writing some crazy things. And eventually, I yeah, got to go out to Omaha. That was awesome. And, uh, and the Dallas Fed had a, a new president, Richard Fisher. And he ended up reaching out to me. I ended up being uh, one of his closest advisors on all things macroeconomics, monetary policy, the markets, preparing a briefing for him uh, before he would go after the FOMC meeting, the Federal Reserve, when, when they would meet eight times a year. And when he retired, I retired. I was no bureaucrat. Still, I'm never going to be a bureaucrat. But I followed him into retirement. I started QI Research. And I've published ever since. Um, I, I published, the first time I published was six days after I left. I'm, some say I'm a workaholic, but I really love what I do, and I just try and provide my clients with as many insights as I possibly can about not just the macroeconomic data, not just where the financial markets are, but how all of this is going to intersect with monetary policy and what the Fed's going to do next. And everybody seems to be interested in that subject, so I just keep talking.
1: Okay, so everyone listening to this is probably wondering, like, when am I going to be able to buy a car for less, or, you know, if you're a dealer... When is my floor plan interest going to go down? And just a lot of questions are going to be super relevant. Before we get to that, why did Warren Buffett reach out to you? (laughs) I didn't want to cut you off, but I'm super intrigued.
0: Um, So I was writing. um, So I wrote that uh, actually Forbes found me after the fact because they were looking for anybody who had written that the subprime housing crisis was going to be both global and systemic in nature. So it wasn't going to be contained in the United States. It was going to be a global phenomenon. It was. It bled into international, the international banking system, and uh, what,
1: what year was this?
0: This was two thousand, um, four two thousand five. That I was writing about. Mm-hmm. This. Yep, um, and I was watching people take equity out of their homes and use use their homes as piggy banks and loan to values one hundred and twenty five percent on on subprime loans, crazy stuff. And I was also writing about the dangers of the U.S. government selling so many of its treasury securities to the Chinese. So. There was Warren in my inbox one day. And which,
1: well, what was his ask? Or his what asked, did he say? I
0: come see him. He's like, you're writing crazy things. You're, you're, you're writing about the, the, the dangers of America, you know, mortgaging the farm. And what's going to happen one day if, if you know, China is not the frenemy that it appears to be? And this was, this was almost 20 years ago. And
1: why did he care? Why did he care about what you were saying? I mean, plenty of people say stuff online, or that, not online at least at that point, but plenty of people say uh, stuff. I
0: mean, this was in the newspaper, and I was, I, I was saying things that at the time nobody was saying. Right now, everybody knows that China is not our friend. Uh, but years and years ago, it was a very symbiotic relationship when Americans first began buying cheaper products that were imported from China so it was it was kind of a, a maverick, radical thing for me to write that we might one day regret the fact that we were selling so many of our sovereign bonds off to another major nation that looked like it was going to be the second largest country, the second largest economy in the world at the time. It wasn't. And of course, now it is. Uh, but but Warren appreciated um, my conservative approach and my concern for for the country. And that's why he reached out.
1: So you also mentioned you spend a decade at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas before we even get into the more nitty gritty kind of deeper details, explain for us people that are not smart like you. Um, what why do we have you know all these different federal reserves for all the states? and specifically, like what is the state level Federal Reserve bank? like what you know level of authority do they have? What decisions do they make relative to the you know the overall federal Reserve? And what we see you know when the federal open market committee makes their decisions on TV and we see you know, uh, Jerome Powell, in this case, you know, kind of telling us what interest rates are going to be at and blah, blah, blah. Can you explain how that whole relationship works?
0: Um, I'll make this as succinct as possible. In 1913, uh, the U.S. economy was nothing like what it is today. There was justification for a Minneapolis, a St. Louis, a Kansas City, and a Chicago Fed at the time. There was so much of the nation's economy that was centered on the manufacturing industrial base that was in the what we now call the Rust Belt. Um, and that was started by, oh, I don't know, Henry Ford. Uh, but that's why there were four districts. When when the Federal Reserve System was conceived, they said, well, we're going to need information on the national economy, but we also want to make monetary policy for the entire country. So we want to have feedback from, from all of the major economic epicenters. And at the time, the, the 12th district, which was based out of San Francisco, was an outpost there really wasn't that much economic output such that when you look at the map of the federal reserve districts you're like well gee that's like a huge chunk of the country now whereas way back when it was really nothing economically and that's why janet yellen's district has had so many blow-ups in her backyard it's not supervised enough out there but back in 1913 it was as far as who's voting and when so all of the members of the Federal Reserve Board, their email addresses end in .gov. It's a formal federal agency. They have a permanent vote on the Federal Open Market Committee. The only district that also has a permanent vote is New York. And that's because it is the epicenter of the banking and financial system. So the president of the New York Fed has a permanent vote on the Federal Open Market Committee. Back in 1913, um, Cleveland and Chicago were deemed to be the, Second and third most important economies in the country. That's why their presidents get to vote every other year. That leaves the eight remaining, excuse me, the nine remaining districts, they rotate in every three years with a vote, which is why last year when Jim Bullard would say something, they would be like, oh, what's Jim saying now? Because he was voting. Now he doesn't, he's not up for voting rotation for another two years. So he can say something, but it's harder for him to rattle the market because he doesn't have a vote. And that's kind of how markets view, you know, this group of 17 voters. They they put them in a pecking order, depending on how close they are to the chair. Are they in Jerome Powell's ear? Do they influence him? Or does he not listen to them at all? And or are they not voting? And unfortunately, you know, this is, there are people who are closer to watching every little detail than I am, and I interpret it easily.
1: How does Fed policy get, how does it get decided? Like, how do all these things work, right? How do interest rates truly get decided? Yeah, I get that, you know, they're being fed some data, but walk us through that process, right? How does that really work? You're, you've been so close to it.
0: So if the Fed thinks that the economy uh, could be performing better, or if the economy is being held back by prohibitively high financing costs, and therefore the unemployment rate is going up or inflation's coming down too quickly, then they'll say, you know what? It's time to ease monetary policy. Let's lower interest rates.
1: But what do they look at when they're making these decisions?
0: Well, they're they're looking at the labor market. They're looking at banks. They're looking at what kind of lending is being done. If if creditworthy borrowers are being denied credit, they're, they're looking at jobless claims. They're, they're looking at at all of the things that, that, that say whether or not the United States is in a recession, industrial production. They're looking at inventory levels. Do people have too many, too little inventories, whether you're talking about a clothing store or a car dealership lot? They follow every single small, all the way down to, as long as the data series is very long and seasonally adjustable, they follow it. They have 786, la- at last count, PhDs on staff. They probably need about a quarter of them. They've got way too many cooks in the kitchen. And one of the reasons I wrote FedUp, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America, is because of how monetary policy is made, which is simply too cumbersome. Sometimes you can just open your eyes, look around, and say something's not right here with, with the economy. And, and that, I think, is a major downfall of the Federal Reserve is they don't have more lay people uh, who are part
1: of the leadership structure. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I w- we'll get to labor, but, you know, the unemployment at 3.7%, the Wall Street Journal put out a stat the other day that average auto repair is taking more than 70, 70 days to complete last year. And that's up from around, uh, up around 65% from 10.3 days in 2019. I can tell you that hiring te- technicians, auto technicians at the dealership has never been tougher. How How do you, how do we reconcile all of this with, you know, interest rates have gone up, I don't know, like four to 5% or so in the last year, year and a half. How do we reconcile all this?
0: So, the, you know, there are several factors that play into this. Um, you know, I uh, we uh, we paid for our lifelong housekeeper son to go through a Toyota pr- training program. It was also partial associate's degree to where he got out. He was automatically working as a mechanic um there are a lot of great programs like that not enough such that you have a deficit of the skilled workers you need whether you're talking about auto technicians or, you, or 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 you're talking about electricians hvac plumbers in the current dynamic people bought so many lemons during the pandemic that the demand for auto repair is multiples of what it's been Historically, because you've got so many more people out there paying loans. They're upside down on these loans, and these cars are breaking because they paid way too much money for high mileage cars that now have to be repaired. As any older, the older the car is, the more repairs it needs. And that's why you're seeing this massive demand supply mismatch between the number of technicians you have and the amount of demand you have for their services.
1: So, do you think do you not think this is representative of the broader economy?
0: Uh, no, I don't. Mm-mm. No. Um, I mean, when was the last time you waited too long in a restaurant? I, I don't anymore. Uh, it was pretty fascinating. Once you saw the emergency, the public health emergency reversed months ago, and and the food stamp program, therefore. It's emergency injection. I think if the average household was getting, I think, an extra $100 a month, Um, a lot of Medicaid funding that was deemed part of the public health emergency, Uh, states were allowed to reverse some of that because if you're no longer in a public health emergency, there are more people who are available to go to work. And all of a sudden, you see this huge spike in the labor force participation rate of unskilled women. And that's, you know, if you pay people enough to not work, they're not going to work. People can do math. When, when the CARES Act was first passed, a single working mother of two, her income was $61,900. let us just say, theoretically, she was a home health aide making $25,000 a year. Why in the world would she ever go back into the workforce until she was forced to do so because what the state and, and the federal government were paying her wasn't enough for her to put food on the table? And or my husband lost his job. There are a lot of businesses closing left and right. And we're seeing that, especially with small businesses, but we're also seeing large bankruptcies, companies with $50 million or more in liabilities. We've seen more of those uh, at the outset of 2023 in the first six months than we've seen since 2009. So there are a lot lot of job losses going on right now. But I think what you're looking at right now is a skills mismatch that is being kind of hyper-driven by all of the lemons on the roads.
1: What what what's the core data sets that you use as as part of your company QI Research? What data set do you rely on? Like, where do you get your information from?
0: Oh gosh, I mean, we have hundreds of data sources. You know, one that I look at very closely was uh, was one that that came out of the pandemic. Lightcast they have weekly job postings. Um, When the pandemic first hit, job postings for individual individuals with minimal levels of education went. Through the roof, you could not pay people enough to work in a hotel, you know, change a bed, clean a bathroom, bus tables. You couldn't pay people enough. That's where you saw the fastest wage inflation. And that number is now negative, benchmarked against January 2020. So we've seen a full replenishment of the deficit of workers that we had in the lowest skilled, lowest paying jobs. We've also had a white-collar recession going on. That's going to be very problematic when student loan repayments resume, the white-collar recession aspect, because the biggest biggest bills out there are among those who would be considered a white-collar profession, and they're about to get shellacked if they don't have a job, if they're paying too much for their car loan, if they have a fat mortgage, and then they get the student loan on top of it.
1: How do you define a white-collar recession?
0: You define a white collar recession by by looking at the, the 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 pay the pay levels of the fastest growing levels of unemployment, professional and business services, uh, job openings in that particular area, which you would consider to be management, good paying jobs. Job openings are down forty percent over January of 2020, because you had so many people in Silicon Valley, so many startups that people just threw money at them.
1: Oh, you Wouldn't said jet- you January of 2020.
0: January 2020 is your benchmark. So job postings in business and professional services are down 40% since January of 2020. So you're, I mean, you're seeing it play out. It's like a microcosm or a macrocosm of Silicon Valley Bank. You know, it doesn't matter what your business model is. We have billions and billions of dollars because the Fed's put interest rates down to the zero bound. We're going to fund any startup that can fog a mirror.
1: So piggybacking off that topic, what's next for inflation? And I'll tell you where I'm coming from. Car prices record highs, service department prices record highs, interest rates multi-decade highs. What's the deal here, right? I know on one hand, you know, so, like cost to produce a new car has also gone up, um, but what do you think is happens next when it comes to inflation?
0: So it's interesting you ask. Um, I follow this metric called true T-R-U, inflation, T R U, inflation. It's been around for a few years here, and I learned about it from bond traders. So I actually reached out to the company and asked if I could use their historical data to run a correlation and see what is that 2.2% that is based on 30 million prices in real time compared to 4.0% for the CPI headline. What is the correlation between these two data sets? 97% with 100 being perfect. In other words, inflation is coming down. Inflation is coming down quickly. We're seeing incentive spending uh, at OEMs on on a nationwide basis double over last year. You're seeing used car prices come down much more rapidly than anybody would have thought. I think there's, there's fresh Mannheim data coming out to that effect as well, despite the fact that there still aren't enough cars coming off lease. So, and add that to the fact that you're seeing extraordinary events, American households in the aggregate are spending less money year over year on food than they were 12 months ago. Food. You had the CEO of Tyson Corporation come out and say, we've never seen beef, pork, and chicken sales down at the same time. But here we are today, all three of them. So households are increasingly squeezed, especially those in the middle. So you're seeing prices come down, inflation come down.
1: Yeah, I think on the car front, just to just to double click on that, I think that with used cars, what I've been seeing is that putting putting that data aside, because I don't think the data's creates a perfect picture. Um, I think we're seeing that on the on like the higher end cars, we're definitely seeing an accelerated decrease there. I think when you're looking at the really kind of bread and butter stuff, like I just need, you know, something to get me from A to B. That's definitely there's like almost no movement at all. Those things are staying very steady. Yeah. Um, so I think, but definitely we are seeing an acceleration on the luxury segments. You know, when you start to get the 40, 50, $60,000 cars, I, I would agree with you there. I mean, we saw, um,
0: we saw what Hyundai sales went up 9.9%, I think in June, I think Kia sales went up like 11%. So your point A to point B, that's happening in the real world.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think again, if we're looking at new cars, if you, even the price today of like you know, you look at a like a, a, the, you know the Kia Carnivals, the Kia Tellurides, very hot cars, and they're not you know they're not they're not cheap anymore, relatively speaking. Um, but but like again, putting all that together, so what do you think? Do you think in, inflation at this point is just like it's behind us? The Fed's the data is maybe a bit latent, or they're just you know they're not they're not really. I
0: think, I think the data are playing catch up. If you if you incorporate. Um... Morgan Stanley put out some interesting data this morning that showed that we've we've caught back all of the jobs that we lost, and then some. So we've recouped all job losses. And in addition to that, if you look at average income across the entire income spectrum of the United States, all workers, you're actually back to 2019 levels. So at this point, again, because companies continue to close, because the Fed has no intention of stopping any time soon
1: what do you no mean by that
0: relief, no relief in sight because that's the case you're going to see continued business closures companies but, just- but, but
1: is that accurate is that accurate i mean just like they told us hey inflation was transitory and then lo and behold rates started skyrocketing like how accurate do you really think that is
0: well you know i mean i've I know for a fact that the the minutes from the Fed meeting can be massaged after the fact. Today we learned that uh, that there were there were dissents threatened by people who were who um who did not agree with pausing at the June meeting. That's the message that they chose to convey.
1: Mm-hmm. And you
0: enough, know what surprised me the expectations of it, of a July rate. i went through the roof.
1: You know, what's something that surprised me as an outsider here, right? Like, I, I'm absolutely not from this space. I was just surprised to see that the way rates went up so quickly, so, you know, consistently. I don't know. I found that bizarre. I, I just figured that, you know, the boards of these, you know, massive banks would have some more pull with the government. I'm not saying that it should be that way. I'm just saying that I was thinking, it just caught me a little bit off guard. I said, how? Like, they're, like, hey look, to your point, SVB, First Republic, all these banks that, They just got decimated by some. You know, you could say there was you know better reasons than others. I don't wish that upon anyone, but nonetheless, I I I just found it very surprising how quickly they were able to pull that off.
0: Well, the Fed is supposed to be an independent and apolitical institution. Supposed to be.
1: Supposed to be. Uh,
0: (laughs) Wall Street has always had undue levels of influence. Uh, Big banks have as well. The fact that Jerome Powell has for as long as he has managed to stay higher for longer, is a shock. It's a shock to the banks, to the bankers, to the investment community, to borrowers, to lenders. It's a shock to everybody, unless he's got what I call a higher calling. If he's trying to break the tail wagging the dog syndrome, wherein the bank's and the big private equity firms would influence monetary policy. If you're trying to say that that relationship no longer exists, that the the rules of engagement have changed, that the Fed's truly going to go back to being an independent entity, that then you've got to stay higher for longer. You've got to prove your point, which, you know, Alan Greenspan took office in August of 1987. You know, it hadn't happened since then. This live experiment that we're witnessing. Uh, you tweeted about Fifth Third a few days ago pulling out of certain um, areas.
1: Yeah. Fifth just Third, they the enti- their the entire Western region.
0: Fifth Third just pulled their entire wholesale mortgage division, just closed it down today. Bye bye. So, you know. Do you th- think
1: that's a proactive measure or do you think that's a reactive oh, yeah. measure?
0: I-, I think that um, if banks can't do math in terms of what the Supreme Court's just said, if, if banks don't understand that in the aggregate, you know, S&P Global has told us that if you add up, not, and it's not just a subprime phenomena, if you look across the entire uh, spectrum from superprime to, to subprime, uh, that that the starting point from a 3.7% unemployment rate is the highest in history. That was data that came out last week, I want to say. That's your starting point. So banks see the writing on the wall. They know that charge-offs are going to be historic. They know that people are going to be walking away from their cars and they know that people are going to be able to walk away from their cars and do just as you said months ago and get another car loan.
1: But do you think Do you think that gets us to a point where it's like a crisis or do you think it just gets us back to like a mean reversion, right? Because we definitely had very low default repossessions over the last couple of years. People were flush with cash. So like to what point does that pendulum swing? Where do, where do you think? And based on what?
0: So I think we do overcorrect when it comes to repossessions, and that has more to do with the fact that I speak to people in the world of boats and ATVs and everything else that everybody was able to get access to way too much credit for after the pandemic because lending standards, they they more than collapsed. I mean, you don't walk off of a lot with a new car, excuse me, with a used car loan with 140% LTV. I mean, like on planet Earth, you that should be impossible. And yet here we are. So you know, charge-offs, what people lose on car loans, is is going to reset history. And if you're prudent and you want to be well positioned to come back in when this party's over, because at last check, you know, monthly payments are still setting new records. So people are still falling down this rabbit hole. They they just you, you can't tell the average person who wants a car. That they need to wait. They're not going to do it. Cars are emotional purchases. And as long as the financing's there, people are going to buy them. You can say, but hey, commercial and industrial lending is declining. That means that businesses are going to keep closing. If they don't, if businesses don't have access to financing, they're going to close. They're going to have people as a result get laid off. And the ability to to you know to hold up the economy is, is going to become increasingly impaired. People don't care if they want a car. I want a car, I want a car. Somebody will finance it for me, even better.
1: Give us the status quo on auto lending, right? What's your current perception of auto lending? And what also, what happens next? Tell us about that.
0: So it's interesting because just today there was an article out that said subprime auto ABS investors can get burned for the first time, possibly since 2009. Um, There was a little chart that went with it. I, I, I think, I think because securitization itself, and you have to look at commercial mortgage-backed securities, which issuance is down, I think, 85% year over year on, for, for commercial mortgage-backed securities. I think you have to be able to see over the horizon, after student loan repayments are resumed, that you're going to see a similar phenomenon in terms of auto-backed, asset-backed securitizations, auto-loan-backed also being similarly impaired. And I think that that's why a lot of banks are stepping back from saying, you know what, I don't want to play in that warehouse space. I don't want to try, try and sell off that bundle of car loans. I'm just going to sit this one out and wait and see where the dust settles. But I think you will see lending increasingly impaired as we approach this student loan cliff October the 1st.
1: Do you see that's going to have a big impact on auto loans?
0: I think it's going to have a big impact on delinquencies. And therefore, lending capacity.
1: I still have a red cup for Fourth of July. For for the audience that doesn't see the video, I'm holding a, a red bought, cup. Still have what My red
0: cup had in it yesterday.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, just some plain and good old water. But there you go. That's Doug, the cameo for the red cup. Um, okay, so I mean, I think we can all agree delinquencies will rise, but the question is how much. And again, you as you know, having watched the space very closely, like, what's your prediction there and why?
0: You know what? I can't tell you where delinquencies are going because the starting place is record highs. And again, this is not- is it
1: record highs though? Because like from it, what it, I saw,
0: yeah, S and P, it is. This was fresh data. And this
1: what fresh- what what data are you what data are you looking at?
0: S and P Standard and Poor's.
1: Sorry, but what specific? Um, like for example, when I, last I looked was uh, just auto securitization data um, in the public markets. I saw that the all the sixty days. 60-day past due loans that were deep subprime were above 09 levels, right? Uh, but then I saw that, you know, when we looked at the other uh, the other delinquencies across the table, it seemed pretty. it has been rising for sure the last year and a half, two years. Uh, but it's still not, it still wasn't above 2019 levels. It was sort of, it looked like a mean reversion. What's your take on that?
0: So I think what s and is looking at is auto loans as opposed to ABS. So you're not looking at different tranches of...
1: Explain the difference just to the audience.
0: There There are some banks that make auto loans and there are some banks that sell loans that are made such that they're pooled into securitizations and sold off as separate securities. Those separate securities are going to be divided up into your absolute most pristine buyers with the highest FICO scores all the way down tranches in between to your, you know, Super subprime, whatever the heck, whatever the least creditworthy borrower is. As you go down that tranche ladder, the yield investors get is much higher. And it is very rare to see losses on these securities, even in the least creditworthy tranches. And yet here we are today, mainly because so many student loan borrowers, a new study came out showed have taken on additional forms of household debt while this large line item in their budget has been on on hold for all these years. They've taken on incremental debt. So it's not like they've been setting aside that $400 a month and they're ready to resume payments with the extra savings. They've gone the other way. They've taken on extra debt. And that's why you see 65% of people who bought homes in 2022 and 2023 Say I I can't I bought my house I can't afford it I didn't know about all this well, how, what what percent sixty five percent of home buyers who bought their homes in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three peak prices for homes now say I'm struggling to make my payment
1: and where's that where did that survey come from or the data
0: um well I I it came from a Bloomberg story that I read that cited the survey. Data, I'd have to go back and look.
1: Yeah, no problem. But another one
0: at the same time said 62%, I think specifically of millennials, couldn't afford their house payment. I don't think people quite understand what's happening in the states of Florida where these insurance premiums are going up for their homeowners insurance, quadrupling, quintupling. Um, People don't understand the cost of replacing a, a new air conditioning system. So for a lot of first-time home buyers who bought at the highest home prices in the history of mankind, these it's a huge, rude awakening to have to carry the cost of the home. Property taxes have gone through the roof. Got to pay them.
1: So, that works so given all that, I mean, what's next for consumption? You know, I think I've heard you speak about destocking, but what's your thoughts there? How does all this kind of trickle down and impact actual consumption in the market?
0: So this is um to be in a de I mean I, I've been doing this for a long time. is not a word I ever had to use. What does it mean? it means it means companies are are taking inventory levels below where they need to continue running the same levels of production
1: and where is this happening? Where are you seeing this happening
0: across the industrial sector uh, I mean uh, it was interesting there was a German uh, Company that reported a few days ago, German German chemicals company. Chemicals are considered to be at the very forefront of the production of the production process because chemicals are your rawest input. Um, but this German company said we thought destocking was going to end in by by the second quarter. It's not, so we're going to cut our workforce, slashing our forecast, taking down our estimates, and you're hearing the same word destocking whether you're talking about Any of the regional Federal Reserve manufacturing surveys. And you're even hearing services firms say, we don't have enough of a backlog. We don't have enough demand to justify having all these lawyers on staff. So we're going to push through and fire some lawyers because we don't have enough casework. So it's not simply an industrial manufacturing factory floor phenomenon where you're seeing this.
1: Do you think car prices? Will actually deflate given, I mean, we underproduced again. I think S&P or Experian put this out, I believe. I want to say, but we underproduced around like 8.6 million cars, new cars over the last three to four years. Now, you could say, well, did we really underproduce because people are now keeping the cars longer? So I think there's definitely some, you know, margin of error there. Or, you know, you could say, okay, well, you know, deduct some percentage from that. But there's no doubt about it. We have underproduced cars and car prices went up and there is a shortage. Do you think that? there is a world where car prices deflate meaningfully and we we can define meaningfully as, let's say 25 to 30% more than expected. Or do you think just given the fact that, you know, new cars cost more to produce nowadays, uh, you know, we've sort of achieved a new baseline and we may see some accelerated depreciation versus what we've come to expect over, you know, the prior decade, but it's unlikely that these cars will really, you know, depreciate or, you know, the prices will deflate a meaningful amount. What's your thought on that?
0: So you're asking me how long and how deep the recession is going to be. You're asking me how many people are going to lose their jobs, how much demand is going to be destroyed, how many more adult males are going to move back in with mom and dad. Uh, it's a really hard question to answer. Um, using a year ago, Mary Barra said she was going to hold the line. And the minute her competitor started doing incentive pricing, that's about how long her resolute stance lasted. Because you can only do that unless you're willing to simply sell less than your competitors. Otherwise you got to follow them down that rabbit hole. You know, I mean, Ford Motor is an interesting case study right now. They're trying very hard to be EV compliant because they want to get their hands on all these loans from the government um, that are cheaper than they otherwise would be. But every time they do this, they're having to like, we just cut off, we just fired more engineers. We just fired more salaried workers. You know, I mean, it's, I wouldn't want to be like at a bar in downtown Dearborn today at all um, because of the steady drumbeat of, of layoffs. And I, I think we're going to increasingly see this. A lot of people, and maybe I, maybe it's my age, a lot of people have no intention of ever buying an EV. But, but my point is, we are going into a very, their car loans with 125, 140% loan to value ratios never existed used car loans never ever and and you're seeing it um this is Cox data and you're actually seeing the the same phenomena on the used car side your average used car has got 104 105 percent loan to value ratio it's just extraordinary i mean your average new car buyer comes in upside down anyways especially from my home state of texas where we come texas is like woohoo for the most upside-down car buyers on the planet, it's always been number fifty-one. Is that so? Oh yeah, Texans love to live beyond their world. It's all about what they drive.
1: Well, it's all trucks and stuff, so I guess it doesn't surprise me that much. And these trucks are costing like sixty thousand plus dollars nowadays.
0: Plus, you know, more McLarens are sold in the city of Dallas than any other city on the planet. People I didn't like know to that. show off in, in in Texas. They like to
1: pay
0: <laughs> and afford. Um, but but you know, you you sent out. I think the most telling of all statistics, you know, it's, it's not a small hiccup to go from 500,000 to 400,000 auctions. At, cars bought at auction.
1: Oh, that was an auction. That was actually, a it's a peer-to-peer, or a dealer-to-dealer marketplace. Yes.
0: Whatever it was, it yeah. was naked. And that means that what the dealers are seeing on the ground is demand being destroyed and a lack of financing.
1: Yeah, I think lack of financing is the biggest one. I think that's well, it's also inventory. I would say both of them. But like margins are holding strong. Margins are great. Um, arguably they're even a little bit better. Arguably. But the problem you're running to, it's it's sort of a it's sort of a survivorship bias though, because if I sold all the cars that I did not sell because the margin was not there, because their financing was so trash and not competitive then my margins would be lower. So it's it's not really accurate because you have that survivorship bias where you're just selling a lot less cars. Um, and then what you are selling is holding its margin. And again, I want to be very clear, like this is not new car, like new car, especially the Japanese companies are just killing it. It's like 2021 still. They are flooded with business. They have no supply and everyone and their mother wants to drive, uh, you know, whatever, like a Toyota. It's when it's starting, we're seeing most of it on the luxury side, on the more expensive vehicles, also on the vehicles that just don't have the type of demand that these, you know, bread and butter Japanese do. So like Jeeps, they have crazy incentives that are continue rising and stuff like that. But again, it's just very important that, you know, my goal is I want to share like very transparent uh, view of the market. And it is, I call it like a tale of two markets right now, because if you go to a Toyota dealership, those salespeople are super happy. They're yep. still getting their markups. Now, try going to a Jeep dealership. It's a very different story.
0: No, absolutely. In fact, Cox runs a chart you know, every few weeks that shows you know, incentive spending by OEM and Jeep's the tallest bar. In fact, I told a, a friend of mine, her. I, I walked her through negotiating for a used Jeep Grand Cherokee. Had like 13,000 miles on it. Something, barely anything. She got it for a song long. I'm like, just tell the guy you're going to buy, go, go buy new. There's lots of incentives. Scared the tar out of the guy in the used car lot. And I'm like, and take the financing and then pay it off tomorrow.
1: Oof, Danielle, you're bad. <laughs>
0: I, have never, I have never financed a car in my life.
1: Tell me, tell me you mentioned earlier about, uh, you mentioned about the Fed hikes. So, you know, some things that we're seeing more specifically, again, on the used side, uh, definitely not on the new side right now. Uh, but we saw that the used only chain of Echo Park stores just closed, like I think seven, eight, nine locations. Uh, earlier in this year, we saw American Car Center and another company called U.S. Auto Sales shut down. Uh, those reasons were for you know one of them failed to securitize their auto loans, another one failed to maintain their inventory floor plan. All roads sort of seem like it leads back to interest rates. Um, in a way, again, I could also make the argument for the used car stores that closed. With all that said. Uh, What do you think is next for interest rates? I know you mentioned like the term higher for longer. Well, what what do you think is going to happen next? Where where are we heading from here?
0: So I think barring Armageddon with the next jobs report, we definitely see another quarter percentage point hike uh, at the end of July. Uh, And then I think it really becomes data dependent to see if we see a subsequent one in September. But the key is the Fed intends to continue shrinking its balance sheet and that really speaks to you can't do one, you can't shrink your balance sheet, you can't run this quantitative tightening policy while you're lowering interest rates. Doesn't work. Why? You fit, well, you can't tighten and ease at the same time. They're inherently conflicting policy levers. Either you're in a tightening stance or you're in a loosening stance. You can't be both at the same time. Then you're you're like. You've got multiple personality disorder,
1: got it. So pretty much you're saying, like you're not like you're not really channeling towards like a targeted outcome. Like if you were to do that, it doesn't even make sense. You're saying
0: no, it makes no sense at all. but but the the minutes from the June meeting reiterate it today. We have every intention to plow forward with plans to reduce our balance sheet, which means that's that fed code speak for, we're gonna get them up to five and a quarter, maybe five and a half percent on the overnight rate, and they're gonna stay there for a long time.
1: Yeah, I think we. I just think we can all debate, you know, what's going to happen for a long time. The future what, is uncertain. mean, certain, if
0: that happens, they have to back off.
1: Yeah, it's pretty, it's yeah,
0: pretty simple. But again, I never in a million years thought that the that the stock market wouldn't perceive the fastest run rate of Chapter Eleven filing since two thousand nine as not being a bad thing. But yet, as long as the stock market is up, as far as Jay Powell is concerned, he's got license to continue tightening policy or at least keep policy tight.
1: I think the most important question that I've been waiting to ask you this entire time is what would you need to see to change your mind, right? What data, what indicators would you need to see to come back on this podcast and give me the entire, just do a complete 180?
0: So I think I would need to see a spike in the unemployment rate. Which, given how corrupted the official data is right now, I'll be surprised to see that. But I would need to see a spike in the unemployment rate, or um, I would need to see some stopgap measure not come through for these student, student loan repayments. If that really happens come October, watch out. There will be no Christmas. Um, no stopgap measure, no spike in the unemployment rate. If we were to see the the markets fall out of bed. The credit markets fall out of bed. Something really bad happening. Like, what what caused Powell to pivot the last time he did was that no junk bonds were sold for a record 41 days in a row. That caused a pivot. That is a complete freezing up of your financial system. That means credit worth. When, when
1: was that? When was that?
0: Uh, it began... November the 14th, 2018, on Halloween 2018, October the 31st, 2018, the debt of General Electric was downgraded by Moody, and all hell broke loose. Why? And, well, we have the most over-leveraged corporate sector on the planet, and it looked like that was the aha moment. If you're if you're gonna stop issuing debt in a system that requires constant issuance of debt, it's called a Ponzi scheme. I mean, we should whatever so I say whatever I like. I'm I'm the boss. But if you ever stop issuing the debt to replace the debt, game over. And Powell had to pivot. Now, that hadn't happened yet. We haven't woken up to to see, you know, the largest high high yield exchange-traded fund in the world is no longer taking redemptions, we're not seeing anything like that. So far, the term that I use with the most regularity is it's a controlled demolition, which is reflected in the stock market. And as long as that's the case, as long as nothing really breaks, he can, he can maintain higher for longer.
1: So you think as a dealer, you think I should expect my floor plan line to be a little bit higher for a little bit longer at the minimum? Fair.
0: I think that would be as prudent as you possibly could be.
1: Yes. Okay. And That's...
0: move your inventory for the love of God.
1: Move your inventory. Always, always prudent advice. There, And I'm not going to argue with that one. Um, expect rates to be a bit higher. With
0: a friend who watched some Tahoe used Tahoe sit on a lot for 120 days.
1: Yeah, it It's uh, look, I think people have gotten more efficient. If you just look at V Auto, just you know, inventory analytics software, you are seeing that you know days on days in stock has come down i don't know i don't have the exact numbers um and also you know turn With time has risen I, so
0: you need to have yeah have you gotta you gotta move time. the cars
1: yeah and then as a consumer i guess you know be similar type of advice you know you're you basically based on what you're saying is don't expect rates to come down on on financing that vehicle but potentially you're thinking that we're going to see more incentives prices will come down
0: yeah, you know, I think so. I mean, look at what the home builders are doing. You know, you can you can get into a mortgage for three and a half, four and a half percent with a new home builder. They're buying down the rate a lot.
1: Wow, I actually didn't know that.
0: Um, and that's you know, but they're keeping prices high. Yeah. So if you start to see more zero percent financing, but prices not come down much, uh, you know, God help those buyers
1: what's the the best signal you're seeing right now if we can you know call it best and what's the the worst signal i kind of want to juxtapose this before we wrap up here so what are you seeing that you're saying okay this is a glimpse of hope versus what concerns me the most
0: so the glimpse of hope isn't really a glimpse of hope as much as it is there's is a huge IRS run program called the employee retention credit that getrefunds.com innovation it's pumping about um June set a record 28.8 billion in one month um, so, uh, to put that in perspective your food stamp program is about 10 billion so it's pumping in the month of June which was a record it pumped about three times as much money into the economy as the entire federal food stamp program going into the hands of well to do it's supporting especially international travel so your planes to Paris and London are full because a lot of this money is being spent. It's a massive form of fiscal stimulus. Oh, is interesting. Spiral, levitating the US economy. I mean, this has been going on since July of 2020, pumping billions and billions. And billions. people always talk, you know, there's this handoff between good spending and services spending. Well, I can tell you why. Because Uncle Sam's still writing some pretty big checks, and the IRS doesn't know what to do because now people who don't qualify, everybody's filing claims. People are forming businesses
1: to file claims. Yeah, I get I get these emails every single day. It's just it's okay. spam at this point. It's crazy. So, but <laughs>
0: but, but twenty eight point eight billion dollars in the month of June is a lot of money. So that is really helping to support consumption in America in a big way. Now, if you're not on the receiving end of this, your life's getting a lot more painful, and that's why you're reading more and more about the middle getting squeezed because they're the ones getting hurt the most because their car insurance is, I mean, just. We just changed car insurance companies because we put a ni- our 19-year-old boy on it. Our, excuse me. Our car insurance company dropped us. We just had to go get new car insurance because we added a 19-year-old to our policy. That um, those in the middle are really getting squeezed. As long as they keep the slush fund up and running, it's going to help prop up consumption. Is it real? No.
1: And then talk to me about the, the second part, which is like, what's, what's the biggest concern or most concerning indicator that you're following?
0: So in September of 2022, so last September, there was not a single state out of the 50-plus Washington, D.C. that had rising continuous, continuing jobless claims year over year. Every state in the nation had declining continuing the jobless claims year over year. That's what you want to see. We have fewer people collecting unemployment. Great. Wonderful. Now we have Five states that are still down year over year. 91% of the U.S. population, however, as of June, lives in a state with rising, continuing jobless claims year over year. And the biggest states are the highest up on that list, like California and Texas, most populous states. So 91% of the U.S. population is living in a state with rising, continuing jobless claimants. And it's been going on for three months in a row. An economist will tell you one month does not make a trend. Three months does. So we've got that going for us.
1: Uh, All I can do is sigh. (laughs) Danielle, this has been fun. I can't say that the content is too much fun because it's never, you know, it's uh, we definitely want things to go well, but uh, but it seems like you really, you really think we're about to take some medicine. That's for sure.
0: You're you're giving the future survivors the right guidance, and that's what's important, right? Live to tell. You're look. You're much younger than I am, but but the whole idea is live to tell. Run your business through scenario analyses, plural, and make sure you can come out on the other end and watch your competitors go away. And know that you know when we come into recovery, you're going to be that much stronger.
1: I might have to call you for some uh, car negotiating advice.
0: Yeah, I'm, it's pretty simple for me. Take the financing, get the price lower, pay it off the next day.
1: There you go. All the alpha you need. Danielle, this has been awesome. Uh, where can uh, where can the audience learn more about you and QI intelligence?
0: So um, come to uh, demartinobooth.substack.com uh, or follow me on Twitter at Demartino Booth or Google QI Research. Um, many ways to find me, but uh, love to have you read my research. We We get de- deep down in the weeds. We look at all kinds of data sets that a lot of people don't. Every single day, we publish thirteen times a week, and i'd uh, I'd love to have love to have some of your listeners come on and join me.
1: I love it, Danielle. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.